Hi everyone, it's Alex here. It's been, I think, almost a year since we started doing the Lorex, or at least since we started publishing it. We don't talk about how long it took us to publish the first few episodes. <laughs> uh, and because uh, Hirin and I are very bad at self-promotion, um, we've each tweeted once about the fact we're doing this podcast. This is just a little message to say, if you could just let people know about this podcast, that'd be great. Like, just show it one Only if person. you think it's good. Yeah, if you think, if, yeah, if you think it's bad, then well actually why not uh, so we've still we've got five reviews of five stars on spotify let's see if we can make it 10 and if it drops to 4.5 i don't care uh yeah no, no, no. we only want five star reviews <laughs> if feed one, the algorithm if each of you could just tell one other person get them to listen to one episode that's all we need really tell um, your wonderful nerd friends about our wonderful nerd podcast yeah we don't really do this for the analytics but it's nice yeah you know we love having these conversations and we love recording this show um but we also love, you know, you listening to it and enjoying it and um, taking stuff from it. Yeah. So if you like it, share it, tell your friends, bring them into the Lorax family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's it. We'll let, you, we'll, we'll let you crack on with the episode now. And uh, Merry Christmas and stuff. And happy holidays. And solstice and everything. Welcome to The Lorax, the show where we take beloved sci-fi, fantasy, and other fictional universes and pick them apart through philosophical, political, and other analytical lenses, and maybe crack a few jokes here and there. I'm Khalil. And I'm Alex. And this is the second part of our probably three-part exploration of the Dune universe, um, written by um, Frank Herbert and manifested in various film and attempted film outputs. Yeah, yeah. and uh, just if, you've, if you're jumping in at part two because you like the title, and why wouldn't you, uh, just let you know we're not going to be talking about the plot of Dune too much or the story or the, or the, like, the grander themes, you know, themes of, of, the, of the setting. That is reserved for part one, which you should go and listen to to get a, an introduction to it. This is very much focused on one part of Dune, its its mythos and its and its setting. And um, when I was writing the notes for this, I I uh, was looking at the the intro section, and I, I really got the sense that this, if this was a YouTube video essay, uh, this would be the part where the it, the camera opens on an empty chair, um, as the person who's watching it looks down and sees that it's like a five hour video essay, uh, <laughs> and this is where our, our our protagonist, the YouTube essayist, would sit down in the chair and go, so Edward Said, <laughs> as the nice little contextual introduction to how this episode's going to go. So maybe, Kirill, uh, you could be that YouTube essayist and talk to us about Edward Said. So, Edward Said. <laughs> um, Edward Said was a Palestinian-American um, intellectual and writer, um his his work mostly focused on culture imperialism um politics and humanity and how all of those things interact in our modern world dynamics of race dynamics of power dynamics of class internationalism things like that um he was born in jerusalem and just like me, his family was displaced during the 1948 Nakba, the Arab-Israeli War. And that was the first big wave of um, Palestinian refugees. So some, like my dad's family, started off in neighbouring Arab countries and then moved further afield. Some remained in the area and some went uh, further afield immediately. But this is all context for the fact that Edward Said having an experience like this, because Said would have been, what, 13 when this happened? Ex living through, you know, conflict, racialized conflict, um, imperialism, and refugee status, obviously had a profound effect on Edward Said and how, how he viewed the world, what he, the forces he saw as important in the world. And that can arguably be said to have culminated in his most famous work, probably, which is a book which spawned a concept of Orientalism. So this was published in the 70s, in 1978, and 
it's a kind of analysis and critique of contemporary and historical Western approaches to studying, traveling, talking about the Middle East and um, you know Western Asia and Northern Africa. And it looks at the power of academia, the power of narratives, the power of the gaze, that's G-A-Z-E, um, to allow that, that allow the West to continue to control and dominate um, other other parts of the world, even without having to exert open military power in a traditional sense. So, you know, this depiction of the Orient as exotic and full of scary, sultry women and shifty, untrustworthy men. Mm, and a heat haze. Yes, and, you know, everything with a yellow filter. <laughs> <and> a- <laughs> In the background. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in any kind of spy film or, or action film, whenever they end up... You know, even before the they little get chased letters, through bead curtains. Right. Even before the little words come up at the bottom <laughs> of the screen that say, like, Marrakesh, Morocco. Yeah. As soon as you... Yeah, you get the heat haze, you get the red or yellow filter, you get the words in, like... Um, and so these kind of perpetuated and perpetuating myths, Western myths of the East... They shape culture because they shape how how we grow up with images of place. You know, they they may be rooted in old stuff, but they have a very real impact on the present and the future. Yeah, and it's a, it, Orientalism is a topic we've tackled in parts in a CR episodes about Avatar, for example, mm. um, in both its positive and negative connotations, because. I think Orientalism is, I think it's easy for people to look at it and think it must be automatically, it's not necessarily positive, but they think it's automatically inherently negative and bad and comes, but you can be, in a weird way, you can be positively Orientalist and it can come from a place of where you're trying to be positive, but you've ended up falling into these traps anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, uh, kind of like, almost almost in a kind of um, weeb way. Yeah. The either the kind of noble savage idea of these, you know, oh, these noble Bedouin who are mysterious and backward, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, resist civilization, or the magical ancientness of the East, um, or like I was saying, the sultry seductiveness, or mm-hmm. the, you know, all, all these kind of maybe outwardly positive um, associations, but them being incredibly reductionist and harmful in terms of like dehumanizing yeah and this is where dune comes in dune and uh if you hadn't guessed it already the fremen uh because we talked about dune the planet in episode one but uh the fremen are the indigenous people who inhabit uh arrakis and i think there's if you just if you just put put into Google Dune Orientalism, there's a, a long and combative, not necessarily aggressive, but combative discussion that's gone on for, you know, we're go well, going on fifty years, sixty years now more, about people on from various backgrounds, various levels of of academia, discussing whether Dune is Orientalist, whether Dune is, uh, I guess the term is like romantically Orientalist, whether Herbert was coming at this from a trying to uh, explore different cultures and religions in a more uh, in-depth way than a lot of the contemporaries were doing versus him exploiting that Orientalism and that exoticness to be like, ooh, look how uh, cool and you know mysterious and sci-fi my book is because I've just taken stuff from a, a culture that my audience doesn't know and then put it into my world. I mean, it can be both. It can be both, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Um because uh, we're going to talk about the the film and the book, but probably this will most discussion will mostly cover uh, Herbert and the actual book itself, um, because there are some discrepancies between the two um, that book readers did not like about the film, or in fact probably book readers who defend Herbert on this subject of Orientalism didn't like about the film because people watched the film and they assumed that was how. Um, for example, the Fremen were portrayed in the book. So there's one thing I want to bring up first. I did put it in my notes a bit later on, but an important caveat um, when we're talking about this is that in Dune, um, and a lot of discussion around this, there's a lot of conflating of the Middle East and North Africa and Islam. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think it's very easy for people to slip into this. They're, they're the same thing. Yeah, and that that is a a very real world contemporary problem as well. Mm. Um, so you know we're recording this in late 2023. There is still currently the massive uptick in genocidal imperialist uh, violence by Israel against uh, mostly Gaza. People in the West are still, you know, still get really surprised and shocked when you say that there are, you know, like Christian populations and ancient churches and stuff being flattened, as well as all these scary Muslims you don't care about. Yeah. So that's a that's something that we can think about that you listening and us talking can think about throughout this as well, because it's something that whether Herbert intended to or not creates this conflation between the Fremen represent Islamic Middle Eastern people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether he meant that, we'll go into it, whether he meant that purposefully to be like, these are the only types that I researched about, but we will get there. June and it's, uh, we'll do the Islamic influences and first as well, because the main conflict as talked about in episode one is between the uh, powers of the feudalistic uh, families that exist in this universe, like the Harkonnens and the Atreides and the Empire at large and the Fremen who occupy Arrakis has been described as an allegory for several different conflicts happening in the real world. The very obvious one is that people think of as Lawrence of Arabia. However, Herbert actually disliked, not disliked Lawrence himself, but disliked the mythos around Lawrence of Arabia. So um, for, for those who might not be super familiar with Lawrence of Arabia, you might be a household name in Britain. True. Um, T.E. Lawrence was a British spy and soldier who... Basically, and at the beginning of the 20th century, um, went around the Middle East fomenting and uh, supporting and uh, and helping organize uh, Arab nations and communities and peoples to rise up against the Ottoman Empire, who controlled all of that area at the time. Um, this was um, during World War One. So this was not because Britain or T.E. Lawrence was super jazzed about Arab independence. They were trying to weaken their enemy, the other empire that they were fighting, yeah. which was the Ottoman Empire, aligned with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Germany. Promised a lot of uh, Arab peoples in the Ottoman Empire their own, once the Ottomans were gone, their own nations and lands to call their own, and then helpfully drew some lines on a map for them and said, ah, oh, this is where you live now. Yes, and uh, also we would like all these resources, please. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so uh, as well as uh, T. Lawrence, there's also um, influences of the resistance of Caucasian uh, Muslims in... That's Caucasian as in the, from the Caucasus Mountains. Um, uh, their resistance to Russian imperialism, ties to the operations of OPEC, indigenous struggles, and also the development of Islam 20,000 years into the future. Um, and in fact, when we look at the way that the um, the Fremen are treated on Arrakis, uh, something I, I I read was that the way the Harkonnens, who are the, the family who own Arrakis, well, they feudally own Arrakis at the start of, of the narrative, um, they're very brutal and repressive and act a lot like Soviet Russia's occupation of lands like Afghanistan and like um, uh, enclaves in the Caucasus and places like Dagestan um, whereas the Atreides um, for whom Paul the main character comes from uh, are depicted in the book as very still a, still an occupying power but in a very I guess like milk toast kind of way yeah I was going to say um, the way that neoliberal Americans would like to see their presence in the Middle East yeah, as opposed to the way that Republican Americans would like to see their presence in the Middle East yeah. either way it's an extractivist colonial presence one is just more openly violent. Yeah. Um, and this is where we, we dive deep into the, the Islamic influence of June because it is uh, heavy. I think people who... I think people reading the book and having no idea that there was an Islamic influence can pick up on it pretty quickly. Uh, it's... A, it, it's um, from, from the off, there's, he uses colloquial Arabic throughout the book to, to create the, the Fremen language. In some cases, using like-for-like words in other cases um using arabic loan words i think um, i've got down here that i found that there are at least 80 arabic or arabic loan words that he uses for the fremen language um and i I think it's important to actually examine that um because this is 
part of Orientalism. Mm -hmm. It's uh, using, whether it's Arabic language or Arabic architecture or clothing or something, as a signifier that something is a set of things that your audience already thinks it is. So that it is exotic, it is mysterious, it is potentially dangerous, mm -hmm. um, it is other. And I think so, something I would also put through the that put running through as we discuss this as well is the is that it can be easy when talking about Orientalism in June to think about to be to look at it in a twenty first century mindset. Uh, I think when you're discussing how the film portrays things, the film is very sanitized when it comes to these things, whereas the book is extremely. Uh, well, the book is uh, a lot more open about not necessarily its influences, but it just it puts it out there. Um, and it, you know, Herbert was writing in the fifties um, when there was a different perspective on the Middle East, um, especially especially in the West. It you was know, more alien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, you know, you get those um, dedicated to the brave fighters of the Mujahideen. <laughs> yeah, what Bond film was that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so the uh, the Islamic influences in the book are embedded into the structure, themes, and the major characters, um, not necessarily just used as like lip service. Um, the the Ben Jesseriot, the the uh, sect of female only uh, philosophers, warriors, and diplomats diplomats uh, utilize Islamic scripture in the series to embed religion into the Fremen. Um, the using a book called the Azar book, uh, likely a reference to uh, Al Hazar University in Egypt. So Herbert and June sort of assumes a future in which Islam takes up a much stronger place within humanity's cultural makeup. And I just want to, I'm trying to find the, where's my note? I can't click on it because I'm using my phone. There we go. So this section, I just want to quick give a quick shout out to an incredible article about this uh, called The Muslimness of June by Harris Durrani on Tor.com. There's a link in the description. Uh, it's a really, really good summary of how uh, Herbert approaches Islam and the way he thinks about it, because Herbert spent, uh, I think, five or seven years researching before he started Dune. Uh, not necessarily all of it on the Middle East and Islam, but he spent a long time uh, reading up. So, And this, of course, is a little bit tentative, because tenuous rather, because this is, this is stuff that he put in his appendices. You know, this is stuff that Herbert wrote about as notes for people who wanted to know more about Dune, mm. not necessarily in the book itself, if you're reading the book. Yeah, although, the, you know, the fact that he has put that work into knowing it, mm. um, I think, deserves credit. Yeah. So the book includes references to, to multiple hadith, so hadith are sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Also uh, references to the 14 infallibles in Shia Islam, and also the tragedy of Karbala, which was an early inter-Islamic battle between the the Rashidun and the Umayyad Caliphates. There's also, and again, this is from Durrani's article, um, a major example about how the Fremen place Paul, the main character in Dune, within their tradition based on a story. And this is a quote from the book, or the appendices. The Fremen said of Muad'Dib that he was like Abu Zid, whose frigate defied the guild and rode one day there and back. This is a bastardization of the story of the night journey and ascension, which is uh, something from Islamic law in which Muhammad travels from Mecca to Al-Aqsa, then Jerusalem to heaven and meets all the other prophets um, in a single night. Now, Abu Zid means father of Zid, which is a modification of Zaid, a reference to Zaid ibn Haritha, the adopted son of Muhammad. This makes Abu Zid the prophet. The Fremen are replacing the prophet with Paul, which look this. Paul, it, peace be upon him. Paul, peace be upon him. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is because this is this is although it's a fairly popular, I guess the word is parable in in Islamic um, history. Uh, it still shows that Herbert's put his work in at mm -hmm. least a little bit taking a deep look at how thousands of years of history built upon the religions of today might um, might, might change things. And there's, in this article again by Durrani, please, please look at it, there's tons of Quranic verse modified and spoken by Paul and by um, other secondary characters throughout the book that he uh, pulls up. However, and something I've underlined in, in the notes, is that you're still taking a white guy and making him the new Muhammad. Yes, and, and also you are treating, you're treating... A religion, a real religion of you know a billion people or more, hmm. um, as it, it as just you know 
a, a story, uh, sorry, a mood board. Yeah. You know, as like inspo for your sci-fi. Yeah. Um, which uh, nowadays one would hope you'd have a sensitivity reader for. <laughs> Yeah, and they would call that. There's up. there's a lot of this in Dune as well. There's like a whole exploration of how there's a uh, a, a book called the Orange Book, which is the uh, the the thousands and thousands of years version of Protestantism. Oh, I thought it would be um, Mao's little red book. No, <laughs> <laughs> no um, so there's a lot of that in his appendices. The Fremen hate um, landlords. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's where I think because Herbert infuses a lot of his his. Um, his setting, his setting, and especially his work around the Fremen in particular, around Islam, and in fact, as mentioned earlier, the Ben Gesserit implanted the. It's implied the Ben Gesserit implanted the Fremen with this neo-Islam, um, when well, so that in the future, so when they create their uh, their uh, perfect being, the Ben Gesserit's idea is to create this 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 person who can take over the empire but be controlled by them. Um, when that person is presented to the Fremen, they will see them that person as the new prophet. Yeah, which is kind of fucking infantilizing. Um, you know, it's saying it's it's implying it's framing it in a way that um, you know these these uh, childlike primitive savages can be manip- so easily manipulated into forming their entire society around a thing that we gave them and created, mm-hmm. and uh, that is why we need to be in charge of them. Um, which is a narrative that is used by a lot of colonial powers about the people they colonize. Um, it's what a lot of uh, you know European colonial powers uh, used to say about um, you know all sorts of civilizations in Africa and in like you know North and South America. They would you know they would say that these people are Oh, they're like children. They're like primitives. That you know, they they need us to uplift them and fill them with all these good ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the Fremen in general. Um, so, the the na- they're most likely based on the and I'm going to butcher this. I think it's pronounced Amazigh. Amazigh. I my Arabic is terrible. I'm, I'm not gonna not gonna be much help here. Amazi, Amazi people, please let me know if I've pronounced it wrong. I will put it in the description. Uh, people of the Maghreb in northern Africa, um, whose name in their native language can be translated as free men uh, or free man. Um, the Fremen in Arrakis live in patriarchal collectives called uh, sieges, um, which are ba- built underground in the rocky outcroppings of Arrakis to avoid being run over by sandworms and this is i'm gonna have to find the where i read where i picked this up from um but i was reading someone uh, who wrote that while the fremen can be read as savage which obviously is is i think a surface level reading someone put the point that because of the way they're presented in the book they're a people who are uh, finely tuned to their own human potential and their place in their ecosystem something we talked about in the first episode mm-hmm. but i think from the off you are given this idea uh, of them as being not necessarily lesser, because I think there's a a form of what's a word that's not as bad as fetishization. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it is it is kind of fetishization. It's um, <clears throat> you know, not necessarily sexual fetishization, but it is. Yeah, it's this kind of flanderization almost of the the kind of the yeah the noble savage um, mm. idea that yes they are lesser and backward but it's it's in a good way you mm. know we're just so fucked up and advanced so this and, and this this sort of narrative actually is kind of related to a lot of the weird esoteric racist uh like uh atlantis mythology that mm. um formed some of the kind of more magical uh background bits to nazi uh, mm. ideology um which is that there was this progenitor race of um of white people who lived in Atlantis and then they when Atlantis was destroyed they left and went through uh East Asia and South Asia and then settled outside into into Europe and places and the fact that that fact meant that um you know yes white people were the best because they were the most like our you know uh Atlantean ancestors but you know the fact that they went through Asia first means that Asia ha- Asian culture 
was something to be admired because it was the most proximal, the, the mm. closest to uh, the the kind of uh, the Atlantean ideal. Yeah. And so that's why you had people like um, Helena Blavatsky, who basically were espousing, you know, the 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 combination of the the kind of the racial whiteness um, with the kind of cultural magpieing of Asian culture to then construct this proximity to a made-up Atlantean kind of yeah. hyper uh, hyper people. So there's um, another factor in this where uh, again it's a it's a discrepancy that can be seen if you watch the film versus the book, where a lot of stuff in the film is passed over. Uh, whereas in in the book, the Fremen are depicted as having they're not they're as technic technologically enabled as the peoples who uh, ostensibly want to conquer Arrakis. Um, they're able to create the no one else is able to create the still suits they wear, which recycle water. Um, they live underground in these huge cities that are self sufficient. They have water recycling and waste management systems that are far beyond what other people in the empire can do. And um, they don't just when it when Paul does. Um, unleash them on the galaxy so to speak um he doesn't do he doesn't give them weaponry or, or like do anything else he just gives in terms of the fremen are just allow they go out and they conquer the galaxy because they're inherently they have better tech not better technology but they have better weaponry they have better armor they're better military tactics and all these kinds of things um which is explored throughout the book and it's sort of the idea of but again it does come back to that thing of like if they're so the the they're great this is what herbert's kind of like if they're great the strong people who are in tune with their planet but they still need this guy mm -hmm. to actually to actually uh, to for let them unlock their potential um you know it what's um you know it's kind of like uh when you'd have like you have the gurkhas um mm. so nepalese soldiers in the british army um the officers are always white yeah. british um, and it's it's still that same thing of, oh, but there there needs to be one of us in charge. Yeah, yeah. So there is that. Uh, there's always these little caveats, and um, I think the film does a really bad job. I mean, obviously the second half is the second half of the film is due to come out, but the film first, the first one, the Villeneuve one, this is, mm -hmm. um, does a really bad job of like ex of introducing the Fremen in terms of their technological capabilities. Like they're wearing the still suits and stuff, but like, in it, it's just like. Paul just puts it on. They're like, oh, "I'll connect this to your nose, and now you can like drink water that's recycled from your body." And they're like, oh, "Okay." Um, and I think also because this this is more of a, a free flow section, but I f f the film does a pretty poor job of yeah the 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 Fremen in the book are obviously coded. The film doesn't it go. It, I feel it goes out of its way to be like. As in, like, at least the book is like these people are based on these people. Yeah, true. None of none of the uh, there's something I remarked upon when I was rewatching the film in preparation for the for the for this series. Um, I think I wrote in my notes actually. None of these guys looks like my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got uh, you've got Zendaya, uh, Javier Bardem, who's not uh, Middle Eastern. No prominent middle eastern or north african actors or actresses in the in the fremen cast yeah and you know the 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 peoples of the middle east are you know diverse in our appearances um you know you have some relatively light skinned and and you know relatively light haired you have some very very dark skin and hair um and everything in between um but yeah it it's it, it seems like maybe they were trying to avoid and this is something that you get a lot in discussions about anything to do with the middle east is people get scared of engaging with it at all yeah so they were like okay so um we've got this middle eastern coded society that are kind of um you know d d is it is it racist to cast all middle eastern people to play it yeah is it racist to get some middle eastern people to play it do we just get racially ambiguous other people to play it, and and, and that's a, that's a problem in itself, isn't it? Right? Yeah. It's like we can't get we can't we don't want everyone to be Middle Eastern. We can't do some of the Middle Eastern. So we do none. So let's just do anyone who isn't white. 
Yeah, right? Um, and that... I, I mean, I don't know who... The, and even to the point where Hispanic is not white, if you know yeah, what I mean. right? <laughs> Spicy white. Um, and I, I don't know... I don't know who you know who had what roles in that decision making process. Mm. I, you know, I I don't want to I don't want to make assumptions or anything like that, but um it you know it, especially it being made in America and primarily for an American audience um I think and, and if you made if you made a, a film where some of the coolest characters are like Arab coded and played by Arabs. Um, maybe they thought that wouldn't play well with an American audience. I don't know. Yeah, I mean the film is is very post nine eleven. Even though we're we're so you know we're po- we're very post post nine eleven, but it's still very this era. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very sanitized in terms of like we can allude to it, but you know. Uh, it's a, you only put the heat haze and the and the the sounds and the bead curtains when they're the bad guys. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And now, now you just have them kind of, you know, striding their way across a desert confidently. Mm. On the subject of walking across a desert, um, I th- I do think, I don't know, I can't, I can't remember whether I mentioned it in the last episode, but I do think it is worth comparing how the Fremen are represented in their Middle East North African codedness, and how in Star Wars the Tusken Raiders. Ah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, because the Tusken Raiders or Sand People. <laughs> yes. <sighs> Rough one, rough one. Yeah, um, you know, they are also quite clearly um, coded after Bedouin esque, um, you know, Middle Eastern cultures. And I, I think you know that's a rougher one. <laughs> it's definitely a rougher one. That, yes, like, especially in the original films when they don't even make an effort to humanize them with having families or homes. Yeah, um, they are just these. You know, mysterious, ragged, robed, um, unintelligible language yeah. uh, raiders who pop out of the desert, beat you up, steal your droids, and retreat on their weird animals. And then again, in the in the Star Wars prequels, they only really do it in that. Uh, I think it's a Frankie Boyle esque thing, where it's like, oh, killing the women and children made Anakin feel sad. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, uh, like part of his black pilling. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that yeah, that's that, that's differently terrible. Is that <laughs> either they are these scary um, kind of paramilitary threats, or they are conscience fodder. Mm. Um. Uh. And I think I think also it's worth talking about the I've brought up two characters although, from the front. Oh, go go. On. Um, although the Mandalorian handles it slightly better in that they are treated more as people. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether that is drawing on the representations of Native Americans in westerns because the Mandalorian is definitely a western. Yeah. Um, but sorry, that was just a little sight. No, no. I mean, I, th- I think it's important to 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 take to to draw out the comparative, especially you know, Star Wars is an anti-imperialist film as well. Uh, yeah. And Vietnam War, Alec. Uh, but we'll save that <laughs> for the Star not Wars. Everyone got. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we'll save that for the Star Wars episode. But like. Yeah. Um, do we have to do nine of them? No. <laughs> we can just do the stuff about why it's a, it's a Vietnam War story. Sweet. Uh, yeah, so I want to bring up two characters from the Fremen um, who I think... And I... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come around... I know there, there'll be people listening to this who are like, but I, I thought you liked Dune, Alex. I do like Dune. I do. I really like Dune. We say these things because we love it. <laughs> but... Um, the two characters I'm going to bring up uh, are Stilgar and Chani. Stilgar is the um, the de facto leader of the the Fremen siege that uh, Paul and his mother find them. Well, Paul and his mother Jessica find themselves in when they are when they're running away from the Harkonnens after they are the family is trapped and ambushed and and uh, destroyed. Basically, uh, Stilgar is depicted as a strong, silent, honourable, pragmatic, pragmatic, um, powerful. Um, respected yes respected feared. yes um very much every kind of noble savage kind mm-hmm. of trope in there uh and although he's written very positively he still has those traits uh and also is almost immediately a convert to paul as well he's also although it, it, he has that 
again a positive trait in that he is intensely loyal to Paul and his friends and his family. It's still got friends and family and his and his clan, uh, but also is like immediately like, like I will give up every. <laughs> <laughs> You've proven yourself in this short or period of time. The, the new white child Muhammad. Yes. Um, and then you have Chani, who is uh, Paul's love interest, uh, who is this beautiful, mysterious woman. Um, yes. And nowhere between in these two is the romanticized, uh, romanticization of the Arab world like more encompassed. You've got men are incompetent and controllable, prone to violence. Um, whereas women are sensual, mysterious, and alluring, and also they need uh, uh, both of them need the steadying influence of a, of a white man, <laughs> a good level head, a stiff upper lip. I'll go there, and I'll, you know, I will make this man my my uh, my adjutant and my my dog's body, and this woman I shall civilize with my penis. Yes, <laughs> naturally. <laughs> On the subject of civilizing through sex, well, Paul does. Uh, Perfect the bloodlines creates a series of uh, uh, children with the Fremen. The perfect child is has the the aspects of the Fremen and everything, but also has Paul's nobility and his, his the Atreides family's traits. Uh, now, as someone who is half white and half Arab, uh, I, I'm going to have to recuse myself from this. Part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so I mean, let's talk Paul. We've 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 skirted around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to know more about Paul, episode one. Um, this is going to be about Paul, comma the White Savior, um, <laughs> because he is. I don't think in 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 many forms of literature is there a more wholly represented idea of the White Savior. Yeah, literally, comes in from off planet mm. and gets rid of the other bad imperialists and. You know, civilizes, semi-integrates, but civilizes and dominates the noble savages. Yeah, and there's a question that is this pregnant throughout Dune, where it's like, you know, like Herbert obviously did a lot of research. He has a, a, a arguable, almost not inarguable, misplaced um, fantasization of Middle Eastern culture and is the Islamic religion. Um, so. And we also know that Herbert was told to tone down the, the Middle Eastern influences in his book. But that's probably not not the reason... Why he publishes. Yes. Um, but that's probably not the reason why he felt the need to use a Greek twink as his protagonist. <laughs> especially especially with Timothy. Yes, he can't help it now. Yeah, he can't help it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, Paul Atreides will never not be a twink. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I, even... From the off, the name that Paul is given um, when he becomes this messianic figure is Muad'Dib, which means the one who teaches. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he a big thing with the Fremen is that they one of their f- final-ish goals for Arrakis is that they, although they are in tune with the planet. Um, their society and their faith leads them to believe that one day Arrakis will be turned into a paradise, um, into um, lush uh, greenery. Making the desert bloom. (laughs) Now, if you don't know the significance of that phrase, Google it. (laughs) So uh, they see Paul as the one uh, to do that, Um, which... Basically removes all all their agency. So why they they're waiting for this one person to turn up to to uh, teach them the one who teaches the Muad'Dib teach them how to turn Dune into this lush paradise, um, which um, I've written here in the notes that like Herbert, you know, assumes one that all peoples who live in uh, in desert and arid climates want to change their ecological situation, and two, has he never heard of Babylon? <laughs> or the Iraqi marshlands, the Fertile Crescent. The it's, bur- it's where we invented fucking farming. <laughs> it's where we invented agriculture. <laughs> Cities and farming were invented in the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, it's it, the that's a big th- big thing that turns up. And I did what I did find was was uh, a mention of there's something that. Um, Philosopher and and and, uh, and critic uh, Gerard Jeanette calls the focalizer, 
which is what is a focalizer so the focalizer is an idea literary idea of a person who exists to introduce the audience to a viewpoint um and i think it's it's i don't know where it, it's one of those things where it's like with all literary theory and like this podcast like i think it too deeply about it because is paul a focalizer in the terms of like is he a problematic perspective that we view the rest of the settings peoples and cultures around because if paul and he is the protagonist and the viewpoint character for most it's the, it's it's um it's third person but it is focused on paul mm-hmm. um and most of the other perspective characters are not Fremen. This is where you get to author intent versus like, you know, are we seeing the world as Paul sees it and the way he's been taught? and Or are we seeing it as the way Herbert intended it? Uh, is the is the question. If you if you know what I'm getting at. Yes. Here. Yeah. Are we seeing things through Paul's eyes or through Frank's eyes? Yeah. <clears throat> Similar to how we talked about a lot on the Warhammer episodes about how everything is is through the lens of the Imperium. Yes. And I think there's another factor to consider there, which is um, how much of that lens was... Like, was Frank Frank Herbert writing from either of those lenses because that was what he wanted? Or was that... Was he writing through Paul's lens because that makes it easier to land for... uh, a white American audience mm. because let's be honest that's the majority of the audience that he was writing for yeah you know sci-fi fans in the 1950s you know we've talked about kind of audience insert characters before kind of semi-blank slates which Paul kind of is mm. um, he's a kind of you know pampered everyman not pampered everyman that kind of a kind of a yeah Paul is like he, a relatable kind of Paul is every uh, main video game main character from 2000 to 2010 basically yeah yeah exactly yeah brown haired um, like white faced yeah. blank blank man <laughs> yeah and so you know audiences can project themselves into it and feel like they're having that adventure yeah um but then also i think that is important because there's a chicken and egg relationship with how the world is presented through that viewpoint mm. because you present the world through a cer- in a certain way through that character's eyes, partly because that's how you want the audience to feel, but also partly because you know that it's not going to be too difficult for the audience to to relate to that view, that world view. Yeah. If you had you know, if you had Paul Atreides be a radical anarcho-socialist, for it, I think it would have been a fucking sick book, <laughs> but it would have been a lot harder for a lot of a mainstream American audience to yeah. kind of pair bond with the main character yeah 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 i i, I think i'm yeah i'm sorry you've really thrown me for a loop now as i'm oh, imagining sorry. no as in i know as in i'm imagining dune but paul's an anarcho <laughs> but then you know he would still be a well-meaning white savior guy going to save this indigenous population but True. you know he he becomes um you know instead of being you know, an an imperialist civilizer. Yeah, he becomes a uh, you know the, the Che Guevara of Dune. <laughs> there's like a there's a based version of Dune where at the end Paul's just like peace out and just like the yeah. family can have Arrakis. <laughs> like I'm going back to where my I'm going back to where the the Trades family's from. I'm going back to our planet. Right, family can have Arrakis. They can control the spice. They can like sort out what's going on. But that's like. Maybe that isn't an ending that could have happened if there wasn't all of this religious stuff happening in the background of the idea that he's... Because Paul is the result of... There's... Yeah. I, this is where people who read Dune a lot sort of go like, but, like, but you're not. You're ignoring the subtext. Um, Paul is a result of centuries of um, genet- genetics programs and religious implantation and... Um, Plans within plans within plans that the Ben Gesseria and other uh, um, factions within the Empire have been trying to create. So there is this sense of I think we cov- we talked about it a little bit in the first part, but this sense of Paul being not necessarily the the main driver of his own life in that he is things happen to him, but he is this creation, 
and things are set and in motion. He fails upwards. Yeah, he does. He fails upwards, <laughs> like all all white guys do. Uh, all rich guys, do, all rich white guys do. He, you know, his father gave him a loan of one planet, uh, and he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. But there is There's still bootstraps. Yeah, there is that. There is that context of like that. Paul, th- there's an argument to be made that Paul, no matter what happens, as soon as he sets foot on Arrakis, it's been set up for this to happen which is a part of like when he gets to the end when he he gets his revenge on the Harkonnens and the Emperor uh, doesn't necessarily the Emperor sort of gets involved on, with the Harkonnens to, to betray the Atreides so he gets his revenge on the Harkonnens he um, uh, subdues the Emperor and the Emperor's armies um, and maybe there is a point where Paul could be like that's all I need um, but because of all this the Fremen are now on this uh galaxy-spanning jihad that's been created following their Muad'Dib. Uh, not called the jihad, a jihad in the film, it's called Holy War. They changed the name. Uh, I wonder why. Yeah, that is that is something that I did want to mention at some point, but I don't want to interrupt. No, so. let's, let's, let's talk about the jihad. <sighs> um, again, with the using a scary foreign word... Mm. Um, but is it scary in the fifties? That's that's what I'm trying to trying to work through in my head as we're talking because, you know, we're like we're saying we're living in a living in a post nine eleven world. <laughs> we live in a society. Yeah, um, and therefore the word jihad has a certain amount and type of baggage and uh, cultural resonance mm. that maybe it didn't have in the fifties. Yeah. Um, so I can see why they changed it for the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of was like, "You cowards!" <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think my community needs that blowback. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, true. That's true. Yeah, it's fair. It's fair. Um, yeah, I think there. Yeah, but also, I mean, the the jihad. It also again takes the agency away from the Fremen because I like this idea story-wise and i like that it's built up to this point where paul's like that he he realizes oh you know i'm this product of all this gene editing and i'm this prophet that's being created by the society my own mother is ascribed to and i've set things in motion that i cannot undo the whole point mm-hmm. at the end of the first book is he's like oh it gets out of shit hand. like the fremen are gonna go out into the galaxy and conquer everything now and i can't stop that i'm going to have to become emperor um however that still removes agency from the Fremen. It's still like they've now become this thing. Like no, you know, they they're now this amorphous thing that's going to. Spin yeah, it. almost like um, you know, some like it's it's almost kind of like an in in a dehumanized swarm or amoeba or something like that, which yeah. you know it, it is often the type of imagery that's used to dehumanize mm. any kind of group of people that you want to. You want to dehumanize you, yeah. you you make them into this kind of growing blob and also the fact that his his conclusion is oh this has gone a bit out of hand i can't control it maybe i should be emperor. Put, yeah like, double down and become emperor yeah rather than like maybe just homer simpson back into the hedge yeah yeah well this is this is where like the all the the dune is mad because there's like this Paul has at this point at the end of the first book it's explored a lot in the second book um, Paul starts having visions of like like all horror all the horrible plot devices in things like it's in fucking Attack on Titan and everything he becomes a person who is able to tra- traverse time in all time but ceases being a thing for him so he will sometimes project into the far flung future and into the past and talk to himself talk to people in the future and so it's sort of like that starts a long train of things where Paul's like, how do I undo this? And like, eventually his grandchild who becomes the, the worm man, <laughs> who becomes the worm man, um, undoes it by purposefully being assassinated and then breaks up the galactic, that breaks up the galactic spanning empire into a load of individual systems. And so stuff. he becomes a worm and then gets himself killed. Yes. Yeah. He becomes a worm so that he can be like, would uh, you still love more- me if I was an emperor? <laughs> <laughs> he asks his consorts. Um, yeah, so that's like it was like, well, you know, when when it started, Paul had already come up with a plan to make sure that in the end, in the end, it would all be fine-ish. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey bullshit. Yeah, 
Although I haven't read the books, so I'm, right, I'm, I'm, I'm being dismissive about it. But Like I said at the start of episode one, read the first three, maybe the fourth, but it, it starts getting weird. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah, and so to the point where Herbert's a... Uh, and we discussed this in part one again. He's like Tolkien. He's, I think he's someone who is a... Or was, he's not alive anymore. Uh, a person who is a compulsive world builder. And so... It just grew out of control, and to the point where like I have to pin pin together all these different things. Um, after uh, this started out as a fifty sci-fi adventure book, and now I've created this enormous galaxy-spanning lore with religions and guilds, and I basically created forty k, um, <laughs> and now I've got to undo it. But digressing away from the Fremen, what I wanted to do uh, just the last few bits of the episode is just to talk about like because you haven't read the books but you've seen the film twice now mm-hmm. um i would say one and a half really. <laughs> the first time doesn't really count <laughs> and you know not uh not to put you on the spot or anything but like you know you are someone with with mixed heritage um mm-hmm. and you got some skin in the game bad bad use of that word <laughs> bad use of that i mean word. literally yeah yeah yeah. Well, yeah so like how do how do you feel uh, uh, Overwatching the film and also over this discussion, how have, how have you been piecing it together in your head when it comes to because often Dune is up there as like the the big shining beacon that goes into the Orientalism bin, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. But how how is it pieced together in your head? I would say that to say that something is deeply Orientalist is not to write it off and to say that it has no artistic merit Hmm. and that it's morally bankrupt or anything like that. Um, But it is deeply Orientalist. (laughs) Deeply. Um, You know, all of the points that we've talked about, I, I, you know, I stand by. Um, I'd say that I'd say that um, one thing that we, I think we talked about in the first episode, we haven't really talked about in this episode, is... That I think even more so than the Tuscan Raiders on Tatooine, an aspect that this has is that not only is it um, Middle East encoded people in a desert environment, mm-hmm. but it's a desert environment full of a, a resource that is being extracted by an empire. Yeah. Um, and so it feels particularly on the nose. This is, you know, again, you know, this is the time we're recording this. Um, America is already eyeing up uh, company American companies to get contracts for developing the natural gas fields off the coast of Gaza. And, you know, not to mention also um, making inroads with companies that are operating in Guyana. Yes. Yes. Um, and the, the kind of the, the multiple extractivist kind of tendrils of empire that will always see people as an obstacle to resource and wealth mm-hmm. and see conflict and death as a market opportunity. Yeah. And so seeing that in sci-fi form was is interesting and poignant but like, you know, a lot of the best fiction is. Yeah. I enjoyed the film. I also, you know, I I watched it with my uh, cynical Arab head on because I have to watch everything with my cynical Arab head on because especially since you know 2001 9-11 um, it's just it's the it's the waters that we swim in yeah um, and so I I can both enjoy a work of fiction and also like notice and critique mm-hmm. and um sometimes laugh at the orientalism the yeah. sometimes outright racism because i have to because otherwise i'll just be a grumpy bastard who doesn't <laughs> like anything <laughs> yeah so there, there, there was when i was doing the research for this i was i was purposefully trying to look at viewpoints from um people with either middle eastern heritage or people who are from the middle east talking about dune Mm -hmm. and there was an interesting like and like i said at the top of the show 
it's a it's it's a, it's a long debate that's been going on on all sides. People who defend it because they see it, they love the books. People who defend it because they, for the first time, read something that had Arab words in it mm-hmm. in a Western sci-fi story, and they're like, oh, and they saw a represent, not necessarily a good representation, but a representation nonetheless mm-hmm. of their culture, and like that still find the problems with it but they're like well at least it's something yeah and i, I, I think something. That's, that's probably where i i fall yeah um is that it is nice to see it is also not in our voice yeah um but you know yeah the we got we got to we got to take the take the dubs where we can yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and i think there's I mean, there is with that imperialism thing as well. Um, the the Fremen do get control of Arrakis and Spice, but it's just through Paul. Which mm-hmm. is the, it's always the little, it's always that bit in the book that's that's the problem. It's like something good, but through whiteness, all things are possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, like I in putting together this this episode, I really I t- I I turned it over and over and over again in my head and. Because there's no, I don't think it's like Occam's razor, but for but not for stupidity. It's Hanlon's razor, ah. and Hanlon's razor is uh, sorry. Hanlon's razor states that you should never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Mm. That was yes, Hanlon's razor. That's what I meant. Not Occam's. Occam's is the simplest, simplest one. one. Yeah. Yes, Hanlon's razor. Yes. Yeah. So I don't think there's. Um, I don't think there's malice. I don't think there's stupidity either. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I think that there's an argument that if you want to give Herbert the benefit of the doubt, or just some benefit, there's one, you know, he was right, He wrote something vastly different to other sci-fi at the time in the 50s and 60s. And vastly different to a lot of um, a lot of people's experience in the 50s. Like... People in the 50s, their world was a lot smaller and they also were a lot fucking more racist as well. <laughs> like, true, yeah. We think we've got a problem now, but... Yeah, and so that brings up a, a point I did put in the notes, which was, you know, of what... Is Herbert a victim of the ethnocentrism of the world in which he lived in? As opposed to, you know, writing a book like this in the world in which he lived, where we know that his publishers will, like, tone, tone it down a bit. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, it's hard to know without having him sitting here next to me. Yeah, <laughs> or his son. Well, his son knows jack in, shit about Dune. So. Tune in next episode for the seance. <laughs> yeah. um, but like that, that that does bring up a uh, a point that kind of often gets um, often gets discussed in in in, uh, in like diversity and, and inclusion circles, which is marginalized people always get accused of making everything about race. Yeah. We're not the ones who make everything about race. Mm. Like, it's, you know... Uh, like, for example, look at America building an entire society based on racial stratification. Yeah. Um, you know, making stories that are all about uh, race. Yes, like, yeah. it, The call is coming from inside the house. Yeah. Yeah, and June is... Uh, one. Uh, another shout-out to my dad who lis- who'll be listening. He's one of the people who I don't need to tell to... Hey, Alex's dad. But um, when I had, I had a phone call with him, and he was saying about how he... Wonderful experience that our, our Dune first episode reignited his memory of how much he loves Dune. I hope this hasn't ruined it. Um, <laughs> uh, but he, he, you know, he mentioned a couple of other books that were, and there are stories like that. Brave New World is like this as well. This idea mm-hmm. of like a, a guy from a sci-fi future going and living with or discovering a backward in air quotes or you know society, and then yeah, well, it's it's your um, dances with wolves, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. your it's your poker hunters it's your, your avatar your avatar the bad avatar <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um but yeah I, I think that's the thing with june and, and especially with the orientalism the fremen and the middle east the middle eastern influences is it's like you know how much yeah how much uh credit do you give the guy how much do you not uh i think the film i think the film being made now should be given more criticism and a lot of the stuff i wrote was more about the film than the book yeah i, I think the film is i feel i think aspects of the film are lazy slash cowardly yeah yeah i think with all the resources available to the filmmakers now there was an opportunity but 
There's an opportunity, but it's always... And I think this is the moral of the story, is that it's always scary to talk about Arabs. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I hate to be banging on that Palestine drum, but, like, it's on my mind. But, um, you know, you'd be... Uh, I'm no longer surprised, but one might be surprised at how often um, otherwise progressive spaces and people yeah. um, suddenly get real fucking quiet as soon as you say the P word. Mm. Um, not not the slur, Palestine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and I think the... Yeah, uh, that is a, a strong, small-scale, a strong kind of concentrated version of what we're seeing in the making of the, the Villeneuve Dune yeah. films, which yeah. is that they shied away from... Ah, Shai alluded away Ooh, um, from very good. <laughs> engaging meaningfully with Arab culture because um, either you'll upset people who don't like Arabs or you'll upset Arabs and either way you're going to lose money. One thing that I'm really drawing from it is remembering every now and again, and especially when you remind me, that this was written in the 50s. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, we can't judge people by today's standards because... You know, yes, standards of of morality and eth- ethics change, but there there are some fundamentals. Yeah, um, stuff can still be wrong. But um, you know, compared to a lot of what was going on in wider American fifties society, you know, it's it's none of us. It could be a lot worse. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we we said in in the first episode, you know, Herbert was a guy who regularly spoke with like Zen Buddhists. And um, was religiously and uh, religiously aware of like outside of his probably Protestant, maybe Catholic, but unlikely upbringing in the Eastern Seaboard of the United States. Um, so, you know, he was someone who had broader horizons than than most people, and that's a positive. Mm-hmm. Maybe, like we said, he was limited by not the technology of his time, but the you know by what he could do. Uh, and his the constraints that were set upon him by publishers, I can't I, I can't quote, but I do remember reading uh, things that he had said about how people would um, uh, talk to him about how yes, this was it that people would ask him about the the nationalist uh, overtones in in Dune and the imperialist overtones. And he was just a bit of a nerd, and so he, he most of the time he would say, "Actually, it's a work of philosophy," and that he he wanted to write about, which is why his appendices are so massive and full of like hadiths that he's rewritten for a sci-fi universe and things like that. He's he's a philosophy nerd who wrote a story, like Tolkien was a language nerd who wrote mm-hmm. a story. Um, and we're coming for you, Tolkien. So don't, <laughs> don't worry about that. But yeah, I, I think yeah, it, it's it's tough, but you know, the book is good. The but it's like this is like we always say with all our episodes, like we're not here to say don't read it or it's bad. Yeah, you know we we you know people nowadays nowadays old man yells at cloud. People love a dichotomy. People love to either consign something to the problematic trash bin or to defend it as the ultimate work of art that yeah. is unimpeachable. Yeah, it is not just possible. It is imperative that we examine and appreciate and analyze and discuss works of art especially important works of art um in in ways that see them in their in their entirety in their wholeness and warts and all i mean i think it it says it says something that like despite what we're going we're talking about right now we're going to talk about in the third episode about dune and and gender dynamics um that you're uh you want to read it yeah you know you haven't come away from this being like well you know that you want to and then maybe you'll read it and you'll cut you'll come back to me and be like full of shit i hated, <laughs> I hated that fucking book <laughs> yeah or maybe i'll come back and i'll be like oh well this bit was incredible and that bit oh, yeah, that yeah, made yeah. Me... but yeah. you know watch this space or yeah read this book if you can get over just it's saying paul all the time <laughs> Well, on that note, we will be coming back to not Paul, but everyone else. Hopefully.
We um, should we should make it our goal not not to say that. <laughs> let's see, talk about Paul. Yeah, let's see if we can get as close to Bechdel as two guys <laughs> talking about a book by a man can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. About shadowy organisations run by women. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, get ready for us to get cancelled. <laughs> Until then, love you. Bye. Bye. While we're talking about um, warmongers dying, mm-hmm. we're recording this in late 2023. Happy Kissinger is dead day, everyone. <laughs> to all who celebrate, ah, may he rot in piss. I hope the ghosts of the millions that he killed torture him for eternity. Anyway, sorry, back to the narrative. <laughs>